0: You're tuning in to a Patreon exclusive segment of Oats for Breakfast.
1: In this segment, we'll continue the discussion we were having about Indigenous settler relations, and we'll also get into chatting about the tar sands, pipeline politics, forest fires, and consider certain aspects of left wing activism in Alberta and BC.
0: My name is Sadia. My name is Remy. And I'm Veronica. So, Veronica, you're going to say something? Like, oh, yeah. Um,
2: I just wanted to kind of see if this is common either in Ontario or in BC. Because um, one thing that always comes up in any sort of conversation that you have, um, whether it's Indigenous people and their education system or the struggles that they face entering post secondary, things like that, or anything else, even if it's the taking taxpayer money thing or whatever. In Alberta, people will always then bring up the corrupt nature of certain band councils or corrupt Mm. chiefs. That's really common as a conversation. Most often, it's not in the context of colonial structures being imposed and creating these councils that are not actually traditional or rooted in actual Indigenous governance. Um, They don't usually go that way. The discussion goes more towards, oh, power corrupts. So those chiefs, those councils, they're all corrupt and they're harming the people. It's not necessarily colonialism that's the problem. Um, It's the chiefs are taking all the money for themselves and buying fancy cars and then their people suffer. And is that common in BC or Ontario?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, like one thing actually, even I didn't realize, you know, until maybe a couple years ago was in terms of like the structure of these bands and all this kind of stuff, how they're actually not rooted in traditional sort of ways of organizing so when a lot a lot of people they they do have very much as typical like see like they can't control their own finances this is what happens so I don't know if you guys remember this but I think it was during the Harper years when a lot of this stuff was getting a lot of press there was that move from the federal government to do an audit or try to do some take control of the finances or something like that right so there's a lot of criticism of the harper government from you know indigenous groups or the left and things like that but i think from talking to just ordinary people in ordinary conversation they actually did seem to support the idea that the federal government should be taking control of that because there was see like you know these corrupt uh, local leaders um you know they're the ones who are causing the problems and so it would be better if you know, these people over there were brought into like the normal way of doing things. So I think that definitely does get a lot of, at least in terms of sort of ordinary way that people think about things, it's definitely a, like has like cachet.
0: Maybe I'm not well connected to, I guess, places in Ontario where these discussions are happening because my sense is that like most people I would talk to wouldn't know even the sort of like superficial level of these things to be able to like enough to comment on it they would probably be like surprised to find that there's these structures existing at all. And I think you guys are right that there there is like for the people who do know, like, you know, are sort of consume the media enough to like have some sense of these things going on, would say as much that, you know, yeah, these are like corrupt kind of entities. It can't be trusted. Like, you know, this is what happens when you don't have sort of western style democracy and like checks and balances as our government probably a lot of indigenous people would agree that yeah. they mm-hmm. don't trust uh, these bodies either mm-hmm. so i don't know my, my sense is that at least in ontario on on, uh, on a popular level these things are not enough on people's minds for for a position to be developed mm-hmm. but maybe i'm wrong
2: i mean i guess in positive respect. um, I did notice that when Hobima got renamed to Muskegee's, Hobima was like a Dutch painter or something. Um, No reason for any town in Alberta to be named after him. Got renamed to Muskegee's and the changes that they've been implementing in their um, education structures and things like that. I've seen a lot of positive support from non-Indigenous Albertans. But another issue where this I think is kind of prominent is actually related to the pipeline coming through BC, where you have the band councils of certain nations being pro-pipeline, and then more traditional um, or non-part of the band council people being anti-pipeline. So in the case of Camp, you have the hereditary chiefs, who are saying this is a violation of our governance, um, but then the ban councils are pro-pipeline because of the promise of jobs and all that. and So this tension exists in a situation like that too. Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, I do really want to pick up on this point, but I did want to go back to just, sorry, uh, just one thing that when you mentioned this idea that, um, you know, people who are consuming the news and consuming media, they're the ones who would have this idea of let's critique these councils, but maybe ordinary people won't have that. But I do think that even just in sort of among just like the common imaginary, the idea of like the chief it exists in right. in the Canadian imaginary right mm-hmm. and so and it's seen as like an archaic mm-hmm. um, sort of structure and so when people do you know people who are not necessarily you know that you know well versed in stuff they they do have like these strong that oh it's you know this these chiefs uh, you know they're backwards organizational mm-hmm. structure and that's why things are are the way they are yeah um yeah no that's true yeah.
2: I mean I think for a lot of Canadians, they imagine a chief as being kind of like a king or something. Yeah, they exactly, don't yeah. understand that role. They also don't understand like how new governance structures were imposed on Indigenous nations, things like that. So that is a really, really important point to make.
0: Yeah, but I, th- I think what you're saying, Veronica, about the differences in Indigenous communities when it comes to like all sorts of different political questions is actually really interesting. And I think it's not... It's not surprising that it's not appreciated in the general population because like there isn't really like mainstream sources for where they would get that. But it's more surprising that it's not appreciated on the left much. Mm-hmm. Um, like in the left's imagination, there is this sort of very simple narrative of like indigenous people as a whole, comprising in Canada like more or less a single entity that is oppressed and has a sort of uniform interest. And which I think then essentializes them and I think denies the, the complexities within the communities and, and denies the dynamics which end up having internal effects on them. And so, you know, as you're mentioning, they're conflicting interests depending on like different groups. They're even conflicting interests in like class dynamics. I'd heard in Alberta, I think there was a casino um, that was owned by an indigenous person and the workers were all indigenous as well and the workers had tried to unionize And the indigenous owner was like, oh, well, this is against our culture, like this is against our traditions. And so, you know, you're trying to impose Western values on us. And that is one of the more like naked examples of how culture can be used to sort of like stifle class conflict. Mm -hmm. So I think like, you know, just on the left, too, there needs to be much more appreciation of like what those complexities mm-hmm. so are not to say that oh it's so complex like I mean we just can't, we can't really develop a position like the way that people say it about like Israel-Palestine is like oh it's so
2: complex. I was just thinking that it's almost completely essential that we do that because if we want to actually evaluate the colonial history and the ongoing colonialism within this country we have to understand how those systems have lingering effects.
0: Yeah and I guess I mean you know on a very material level the the distribution of resources is vastly unequal and to go back to your point about like where different nations will stand on pipeline issues well some nations stand to benefit a lot from pipelines being constructed mm-hmm. and like passing through the lands in a particular way others stand to disproportionately bear The burden of like spills and sort of environmental consequences. And, you know, some of that will end up influencing who the different stakeholders are, what the sort of nature of the struggle is. And it's hard to predetermine that, like, oh, well, you know, if you see a random indigenous person and a random settler, one is going to be pro environment, the other is going to be, you know, pro pipeline. Mm
1: -hmm. I think there definitely is this, you know, we don't want to get into the, Uh, position where there is this, you know, assume this homogeneity between all, you know, different groups and the same discourse, the same sort of material realities that exist for any other group will exist. Uh, Maybe you have an indigenous group which is located um, in a particular area and maybe, you know, people from from those areas will get a lot of the jobs that are being going to be used for construction of a pipeline, uh, however temporary those jobs are. Um, maybe some people within these communities—we don't want to just have like geographical, um, you know, cleavages. To look at internally as well, some people who maybe rely on um, more rely on fishing or hunting or, or just some other kind of job. Even you know, they work in the tourist industry. That's going to be hurt a lot within the same community. Whereas people who are more likely to pick up temporary work or seasonal work or something like that—they'll be materially benefiting. Uh, maybe elites in these. Uh, these groups will also be the ones, um, you know, who will be benefiting as well. You know, so like we don't want to necessarily have this idea where, you know, we assume all Indigenous people are like this vanguard of the environmental Mm -hmm. movement. Um, But on the other hand, like I am, I do wonder how much uh, since the federal government bought the Keystone Pipeline, uh, obviously they're trying to find a way to get this thing through. And one of the potential things that I've been brought up is selling it uh, to various... um, First Nations groups, and so they will buy it from the federal government and then this idea, and then, you know, they'll be able to use a discourse of, you're trying to, like, you know, you're hurting, um, you know, this is, this will be a nice reversal, you know. That's strategically very smart. It is, (laughs) yeah, and and these, obviously, but then you have um, indigenous groups that are located around the coast, or, which are, which have, you know, no interest in this, so this will put, this will obviously pit, like, materially two different, Mm -hmm. you know, or many different groups against each other, so I am a little bit, um, you know, so we can look at how some some nations may be pro-pipeline, some anti-pipeline, but I, I am sometimes a little bit skeptical of how much actual pro-pipeline sentiment there is versus how much of it is uh, sort of this pro-pipeline discourse, which tries to be like, oh, you are just a bunch of, um, you know, these urban types, you know, you guys are well off and your you know, your ideology are trying to, you know, hurt You know, indigenous people and uh, their material development and all this sort of thing,
0: which incidentally seems to also be what like non-indigenous workers who are like you know maybe in the oil sands or like logging industries will probably think of like hippy dippy environmentalists Mm -hmm. to be like this is our bread and butter. Oh, exactly. Trying to take it away. Yeah.
2: What I've also noticed more on the pipeline thing is there's a lot of people who work somewhere in the pipeline business, um, whether it's on the pipelines, on the rigs, whether it's manufacturing the materials that are going up there, doing all sorts of things. And it's not even necessarily that they care about oil or really believe that it's good. It's just, we've been led in Alberta particularly to believe that we're so dependent on Mm. oil and there's just no alternative I was thinking about it and it's almost like in a fairy tale, there's this land that's been cursed and everyone believes that they just have to keep appeasing the witch Mm. or the dragon that's that's running over their their town and making them live this certain way. And no one ever sees any out to that. They just feel like if they don't abide by the structure that's been put on them, everything's going to collapse. Um, so you'll often have, um, people especially who are married to oil field workers, getting very upset anytime they see any challenge to mm. oil or pipelines or anything because their hardworking partner provides for them with that that job and we can't critique it because it'll all just come collapsing down and how dare you wear plastic or how dare you drive your car and then dare critique these hardworking people mm. um that's extremely common rhetoric
1: yeah um for some of the bc provincial elections so i did some like it's basically phone banking right and the and I guess when you when you were calling towards the the interior, that was definitely like my husband was get is gonna you know if this thing gets built, my husband get a job, my son's a job i'm gonna get a job, and it's like, oh where are you calling from you get you know you you guys are just on the coast you don't uh, you don't know anything you're bad for the economy you're bad for jobs you know you're completely removed from this situation so um you know that definitely that idea that this is the only possible, you know, like economic, this is the only mm-hmm. viable thing. But I mean, it, we, you know, when we when you look at actually the amount though, like of, you know, how much was the pipeline buffer, like 4.5 billion. If you actually look at the amount of money that's being spent to prop up an industry, which might not be that economically viable, even for too much longer, there is this disjuncture between like the actual economic, you know, reality for Alberta, like where's, even if Alberta doubles down now, where is it going to be in, in mm-hmm. 20 years
0: yeah, I mean, on the one hand, like you can, you know, I can immediately sympathize with those sort of sentiments to be like, yeah, this is not just like our source of income, but it's a good source of income and you're coming after it. So you're coming after our paychecks, you're coming after like our ability to have a house and, you know, make a future for our kids. And so, but there is this sort of like defensiveness, right? And a like an underlying sentiment of like anxiety and fear, which I guess reveals a lot about like how much these people who do rely on these industries recognize like like that it's a house of cards that, you know, all it would take would be like one slump in the oil prices or like one government that's like maybe not totally on board with oil and then they would lose everything. And so like it sounds like a lot of the fear is driving like, no, we have to compulsively like try and, you know, feed this uh, curse. Um, in you guys' experiences, then Does it seem like any out? Or what could potentially be an
2: out from tar sands and oil? It's kind of tricky because if I recall, um, it was more than just talk. The NDP government in Alberta, despite being aggressively pro-pipeline and pro-oil, they were working on ways of trying to at least bring a little bit of focus on renewables and getting people in those jobs and things. But overall, it is pretty dismal. And I mean... Again, with the Albertan conservative paradox, you'd expect them to be very free market. And on the one hand, they are, and they want the oil companies to be in there. And they insist that we have to keep royalties low. We have to keep our entire economy open so that oil companies want to be here. But then when there's a decline in the price or an international issue comes up, um, all of a sudden it's the government's role. And Albertans then expect that it all would fall on the shoulders of the government. So decline in oil price means that the NDP's Rachel Notley must have done something wrong. She's too anti-oil, which, of course, is very laughable. Um, So she has to go because we have to restore our oil market, essentially.
1: Yeah, and I think that this is one, like the Alberta, the oil situation is one of the situations where we really see that you know, the way that a lot of people look at politics and the economy is very, very short term, when actually the roots of a lot of the stuff, you know, it, it's the result of decades of policy, right? So even when you look at uh, the NDP, notably government comes in, and they did slightly raise the royalties and all, mm-hmm. this, all these kinds of things, which I'm totally supportive of. But if you actually look at, you know, economically, like the time to have had high royalties was decades ago, um, you know, so there was decades of squandering, you know, let's say a gold mine, but, you know, more oil, you know, and, uh, you know, the time to really build for the future was then, and then wait, and, you know, there was no reinvestment, there's no plan for what comes afterwards. Um, you know, it was squandered with low royalties, tax breaks, um, all these kinds of things. And then when, you know, the, you know, the, the bust happens, um, you know, it's, very hard for even a government who does have going to actually be able to do anything in that time, right? The time uh, for increased royalties was, yeah, like 19, like, you know, 95 or 2000. Um, Our former star conservative was Peter
2: Lougheed, and he actually had quite high oil revenues. And he was very adamant about trying to keep royalties high and making sure Alberta as a province had control over the resource. And of course, The heads of the oil companies did not like him. He was kicked out of the, what is it called? Calgary Petroleum Club or something like that. Um, Lockheed, I'm trying to remember, I think he was elected in 71. So then you have like the 80s, all the uh, greed is good, neoliberal rhetoric. And so then, of course, we have Ralph Klein later, who is an embodiment of neoliberalism. Klein gets elected maybe 91 or something. He wanted to privatize a ton of things. Um, He had a lot of friends in uh, different industries who wanted more privatization. Healthcare, uh, for instance. And he dropped oil royalties really far down. So then you have this period now that totally erased our former ideas about preserving the resource for Albertans' high revenue or royalties to make sure that we had this to bank on. He tells everyone that it's going to be better in the hands of the free market. We just have to keep the oil companies happy so they stay as if you know, they're just going to find oil somewhere else. Um, and ever since Klein was around, we've adopted this rhetoric that we just have to keep these oil companies happy. We can't dare take the royalties even 1% higher. So we are really at the mercy of these oil companies. So even someone like Notley has to prove that she's going to stand with these oil companies.
1: Oh, say so just a random Ralph Klein, which election was it where I think... His entire election campaign was, I'm going to cut everyone a couple hundred dollar check. Oh. And, and every, it's like that, that was the state of Alberta politics. <laughs> Ralph, yeah, line. that was you know, uh, just here's your $300. Um, it was 400, yeah, 400 I think. 400, okay.
2: I think it was 400. And that happened when I was in grade six. And it was the Ralph bucks, everyone yeah. called them that. And of course, instead of investing that in something uh, for everyone in the province to use, he just decided, of course, this money is better spent in the hands of Albertans. So everyone from all the newborns up just got $400 to spend on whatever.
0: Well, one of the things that's sort of like ironic about Alberta is that, you know, on the one hand, you have these like hellish Tarzans. Like it just looks like it's a nightmarish, you know, dystopian, post-apocalyptic scenario. On the other hand, you have these like, crazy forest fires that have been happening. Mm-hmm. And of course, like the biggest one in like Canadian history was, you know, 2016 Fort McMurray um, that caused the most damage of like any natural disaster. And, you know, we all saw images of like people driving through these flames on both sides. It just looks like it's out of a video game or a movie. Um, so what was the reaction of people in Alberta when that was happening? And is was there some... Any connection in people's minds between like uh, environmental dis- destruction that's happening through like oil and tar sands and the sort of vis- very visible, you know, environmental crisis that's happening?
2: From what I saw mostly in the media, um, when that was happening, I was in Toronto, and I saw a lot of people mostly complaining about, oh, is Notley doing enough to support the victims? And that was the media story that kept running. Um, but of course, these forest fires have been getting so bad. I was in Alberta this summer, the past summer, and the one before that. And the smoke from these fires is so thick, it's an actual fog that it'll either blow over the mountains from the forest fires all on BC, California, or from the north when there's forest fires in northern Alberta. And so all of Edmonton, all the way down to Calgary and further south, you're just in this blanket of smoke. It smells like there's a campfire right next to you. Um, The air is toxic. People are advised to stay in. So it's affecting everyone, and it's frightening. It's absolutely horrifying. And of course you know that some people are making that connection, but the media only ever portrays it as these individual disasters and doesn't connect it with this broad but very noticeable pattern of these severe, huge forest fires just happening all over the western half of the continent. It's also been happening this summer, I think in Siberia, um, and Alaska well. and yeah. Greenland and in the <laughs> Arctic, yeah. forest fires there. Uh, we were we were in Vancouver last
0: year in probably early September. We couldn't see the mountains. It was just when it was supposed to be like near the end of the fire season. But it was just like we, we didn't see the mountains for the whole like, you know, seven days or maybe one day. We saw the mountains. And then when we went to Vancouver Island in Victoria, Again, like, it, it was just like smokiness all around. And then one day we woke up and it was like, my eyes were burning because the smoke i guess the wind had mm-hmm. shifted in such a way that it and i was just like whoa this is really unlivable mm-hmm. um and one of our friends who lives i guess somewhat in the interior he was like yeah you know this is just like you know the sky has just been covered with smoke we've had no blue skies for like a few months now uh my throat has been scratchy my chest has been kind of heavy but uh yeah and we were like Oh, that's really not mm-hmm. what I imagine when I imagine BC.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you know the um the idea of forest fires in uh, in the Okanagan is pretty like we think okay it's this, this going to happen every year. Sometimes I'm you know I'm not sure if people draw a connection between something like that and you know the environmental crisis in general. And even if they do, like maybe sometimes these things are so visible that it's you know can drive the point home. But then you still you always get this tension between okay so like so what you know like what what do we do about it and so even if people think that okay forest fires are a problem and if you're like a farmer you have you know there are some material (laughs) aspects there or you you know can't you know respiratory so some people will have you know strong feelings about it but other people it'll be okay this sucks it's not good but you know you can't do much about it
0: which is accurate. Like, I mean, I think the vast majority of people don't have any control over mm-hmm. anything. Like, I mean, forget natural disasters. You don't have even control of like, you know, whether we can take a day off sometimes from work. And so, yeah, I think like it's really misguided for anyone to be blaming the workers mm-hmm. in these sectors to be like, you know, how can you uh, go to sleep at night knowing that you're contributing to, you know, the destruction of the environment. It's like, okay, well, if the logging industry is the only industry that's here or the terra sands is the only industry that's around, what am I supposed to do except to, you know, in one way or another contribute to it? In, in the absence of a political project to actually offer alternative ways of like surviving, like there's literally nothing else that we can do except to be like, that's really shitty, you know. This is that that's how I feel right now with like hearing about the Amazon burning yeah. news, yeah. Uh, and it's like, okay, like keep seeing these pictures, keep seeing all these like headlines, still nothing I can do about it.
2: And even the people who are considered some of the top most environmentally aware policymakers um, and policy advisors, I, the things that they're recommending are not going to make an impact. And you'll have people say, we can have both economic growth and environmental protections. And then they'll recommend, you know, carbon outputs that are still vastly higher. Ban straws. Yeah, Banned yeah. straws. We'll have Past paper straws, alternatives. Yeah. But we're still going to have our industry that's, you know, polluting all these rivers and just creating mass amounts of of waste and product. And it's just, we're still at the point where even the best alternatives being given to us in the media are not going to do anything. And they're still focused mostly on maintaining profits and capitalist growth. So we're really in a stuck situation here.
1: Like I don't want to be pessimistic in the sense of you know the possibility of like successful class politics from you know from a working class position, but the destruction of you know the Amazon you know, it's been go- you can say it's been going on for a- for a long time, but there is, you know, something especially villainous about Bolsonaro and Mm -hmm. that, uh, and, you know, in the way he came to power and like, and maybe he won't win in another election, but they're going to get as many profits Mm -hmm. uh, as much as possible during this time. Right. And once, you know, once this line is gone, you can't get it back. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have, you know, it takes much, takes much longer and a much bigger political project to try to like build something that can counter this rather than having, even one term of Bolsonaro will do so much damage that, you know, could be irreversible. Right. So in terms of that, like the, the, I thought you
0: weren't a pessimist,
1: (laughs) (laughs) but I, you know, in terms of, you know, their, their, the differences between who actually control like is in Mm -hmm. political power, like those kinds of things, you know, they do have a very big influence. I mean, in general, we look at, you know, all these different parties and they're all, we can say, okay, none of them are all, are very good. But some are definitely probably worse than others. Maybe maybe in Canada, political parties op- all operate similarly. But in, you know, in the Brazil example, I don't think that we would have without the, that particular project of like Bolsonaro, like we wouldn't have seen the same extreme degree of what's um, happening now.
0: No, I think you're right that there is something to like, you know, it was a qualitative leap with Bolsonaro. But it, it's like, you know, with, Veronica, you were saying that there is even in a place like Alberta, which like you know a lot of people in Ontario might write off, is like okay, well those people are never going to be on board with radically changing the basis of their uh, their economy. But like there seems to be a sort of inclination towards like the government playing a certain kind of stabilizing role um, when it's necessary, and there seems to be a legitimate fear underlying like such heavy dependence on the tar sands and the oil sector. And so if there was something that was, you know, meaningfully put forward where, you know, a political party was saying that they would radically put investment in to try and shift things away from the oil sector, but like provide jobs, I would imagine that it wouldn't
2: just be like written off
0: by Mm -hmm. a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I think with Alberta, a lot of people there are not conservative in the way that you think they were. And I I mentioned that before, but... Uh, For instance, a lot of people who would vote conservative in Alberta, if they were choosing their favorite U.S. uh, candidate, they would choose Bernie Sanders. Mm. Their pull towards the conservative party is more because they think that's the party for them. And then there's this hatred of essentially liberal hypocrisy in Alberta. I think another factor that got the UCP elected is Justin Trudeau being in power federally. And it's that, again, anti-federalism, but then there's also a very personal hatred of Trudeau's in Alberta. But it's not necessarily that they want pure conservative policies. It's just they think that's the only option compared to the liberals. Mm -hmm. I have so many conversations with different people who um, might even say that they'll vote conservative or think they're conservative. But then we'll talk about anything from money to jobs and they're always taking up the furthest left position. They can see through the system that they're living in, but they just don't know how to respond to that. And Mm -hmm. they don't know how to not be taken up into this fake liberal versus conservative, like, almost two-party system. Or if it's not liberal, it's NDP. Um, The spectrum is so narrow, like, they have no choice but to go. And they think that there's the liberals and there's the conservatives, and those are the two different options. But they can actually be extremely left. I've met people who are, like, almost anarchists, basically,
1: And they don't even know it. And I think that that's like something that, you know, nature of like right populism a little bit in general is that, you know, people will always point to like the racism and all this kind of stuff. Of course, those are, you know, we don't want to discount those, but a lot of it are like, you know, critiques of... Um, you know, the system or, um, you know, this like broadly idea of like, or like insiders and what they want is an outsider, the the elites, you know. So I think for a lot of people, like the liberal brand is exactly what they like, that epitomizes what they don't like about politics. So there is this base of, you know, we want change, we realize something is wrong. But in, you know, in Canada, uh, there's has never been like, the left has never been able to tap into um, sort of that discontent right so there is going to be if there's discontent the right has been much better obviously at at tapping mm-hmm. into it
0: thanks for tuning in to this patreon exclusive segment of oats for breakfast
1: and thanks for supporting the podcast on patreon it means a lot to us
2: we'll see you next time